Everyone, as we continue our studies in the book of Genesis, this week we find ourselves in Torah portion, Vayeshev, which means, and he's settled. Um, yesterday was Thanksgiving, and we've had uh, uh, our kids and grandkids in for the week, and I've just had a great time, and Robin as well, uh, just getting reacquainted and visiting and talking. So this study did not have... Uh, all the preparation I would normally put in during the week. But on the other hand, it's got uh, probably 50 years of preparation behind it. So what I want to do this week is, as I think of this Torah portion, this section of Joseph's life, I'm going to just bring out some highlights that always go through my mind when I think of this. So if I'm just thinking about the portion, these are the things that come to mind. So I, I cut and pasted some things from past notes and put them together And um, so I hope it's a a blessing to you. Joseph, as you probably know already, is a prefiguring of Messiah more than any other person in the Hebrew Scriptures. None of them, none of them picture Messiah in such distinct detail as does the life of Joseph. It's, It's an incredible thing. And it's this sort of thing that just is such a faith builder that gives you confidence uh, in the Word of God and in the Torah. So I hope you'll be blessed as we go through this. And as we go through the life of Joseph, which uh, continues through the end of Genesis, I hope you'll be looking for these parallels. And every time I go through the life of Joseph, I find a few more. Um, I have a, a, a note here in the margin of my Bible from years ago. It says there are 42 different parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Messiah. Actually, there's probably twice that many. So I need to update my note. And um, so I hope you enjoy looking at these parallels as much as I enjoy sharing them. Now, before we get right to this Torah portion, let's back up just for a moment to chapter 30. I want us to understand how Joseph got his name. Uh, You remember, Jacob had... Uh, ten children already through Leah and Leah's handmaiden, Zilpah, and through Rachel's handmaid, Bilhah. And then finally, Rachel has a child, and that child is Joseph. And then she'll have a second one. That's Benjamin. So let's take a look in chapter 30. And in verse 22, it says, God remembered Rachel, God hearkened to her, and he opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has asaf, my disgrace, asaf. This is the beginning. This is the root word that begins the name Joseph. And asaf means to gather. Uh, Your translation may say that God has taken away my disgrace, but a better translation is that he's gathered up my disgrace. He's gathered it together. And then it goes on. So she called his name Yosef, Yosef. And saying, may Adonai Yosef for me another son. May God gather to me or add to me another son. Now, this is very important. Joseph's name is based on two things that God did. One is he gathered away Rachel's disgrace because being a wife and not being able to produce children was considered a great disgrace back at this time and even today in in many cultures. So God gathered gathered the disgrace away from her, 
But then he added, he gave her a son, and she prayed, may God add to me, gather to me another son. Now think about that with Yeshua. Yeshua gathers away our disgrace, the disgrace that comes our way through sin. He brings us forgiveness and deliverance, redemption. But also, he wants to bring us fruitfulness. He wants to add to us, not necessarily riches and fame and, 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 uh, and wealth, but he does want to replace what has been taken away with things that are good, with righteousness, with fruitfulness, and with light in our lives. And we see these two aspects of Yeshua's work in the naming of Joseph himself. So just keep that in mind as we go through. Okay, let's move on up to chapter 37 where the Torah portion begins. <clears throat> Excuse me. The way this begins is... Uh, very interesting, and at first it doesn't make sense. It says, Jacob settled the Yeshiv in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Generations, plural. Now, what's the next thing you would expect? You'd expect a list of all of Jacob's sons, beginning with Reuben, going right on down through Benjamin. That's not what it does. It says, these are the generations of Jacob, Joseph. It names one name, Joseph. And then it goes on to say, at the age of 17 years, was a shepherd with his brothers by the flock. But he was a youth with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And it goes on. Why would it say this is the generations, or uh, these are the generations of Jacob, and they give us just one name? Well, we have to go through the story of Joseph and get to the end of the story and then come back to this. It'll make sense. If it hadn't been for Joseph, Jacob and all of his sons would have perished, most likely, in the famine that was about to sweep through the land. But because of Joseph, Jacob and his brothers and their families were spared. Egypt was spared. The nations in that part of the world all came to Egypt for food. They were spared. So it's almost as if the salvation of the known world at that time depended on this one man, this one 17-year-old, Joseph. And so I think God is giving us an insight into here of the value that God puts on Joseph's life. These are the generations. These are the toldote of Jacob. This is the, the produce of his life, the fruit of his life, and it names Joseph, because all the fruit of Jacob's life is because, is spared and preserved because of this one son, Joseph, this blessed son. And how much like Yeshua? Because if we have given ourselves to God, our identity is now found in Yeshua. And it's through Yeshua, all things are, are gathered together. All things are gathered in. And, um, and Paul writes about this much in his, his epistles. And maybe this verse is going through Paul's mind as he wrote those things. That all things are going to be gathered together and brought into oneness through Yeshua. Just as Jacob's family and the world was spared and saved through this one man, 
Joseph. Now, you know the story about how uh, Jacob sent his son to his brothers, just the way God sent his only begotten son to his brothers. And, um, and he, it goes on to say that he, he went and he went to where they were supposed to be in Shechem, but they weren't there. But the place he did find them was in Dothan. Dothan comes from the word da'at, which is the word for law, and Dothan means double law. Now, his brothers hated him, as you know from the story, and one of the reasons they hated him is because of his dreams. And so, what I want us to do is take a look at the two dreams that Joseph had, and we'll find those in beginning with verse 5. Now, through the story of Joseph, we find three pairs of dreams. Joseph had a pair of dreams, which we're going to look at right now. And then in prison, he meets the uh, cupbearer and the baker. Each of them has a dream, so there's another pair. Then in next week's Torah portion, we see Pharaoh having a pair of dreams. Uh, Later in Daniel, we see Nebuchadnezzar having a pair of dreams. And... um, uh, you go through the scriptures, and it's not unusual for, for, for dreams to come in pairs. And I think the principle here is that um, God is teaching that when he wants to emphasize something and make it emphatic, he repeats it. And this is a principle of the scriptures. So we want to know what the scriptures are emphasizing. Look what is repeated. And if things are not repeated, he's not emphasizing that as much. So we need to stress what the scriptures stress, but we should not be emphatic where the Bible is not emphatic. All the Bible is true, but some things God stresses more than others. We just need to know what the scale is so we know what the weightier parts of the Torah are. So here are the two dreams Joseph had. It says there in verse 5, Joseph dreamt a dream which he told to his brothers, and they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear, if you please, this dream which I dreamt. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the middle of the field. So this is a harvest time. When, behold, my sheaf rose and also remained standing. Then, behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Would you then reign over us? Would you then dominate us? Now, there are two words used there we're going to look at in a moment, reign and dominate. And they hated him even more because of his dreams and because of his talk. Verse 9, he dreamt another dream and related it to his brothers. And he said, look, I dreamt another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. His father scolded him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamt? Are we to come, I and your mother and your brothers? Now, you have to notice the mother, Rachel, has already passed away. So he's saying, Am I and your dead mother and your brothers to bow down to you to the ground? So his brothers were jealous of him, but his father guarded the matter in his heart. That last phrase reminds me of of Mary when uh, she and Joseph took uh, baby Yeshua to the temple for his circumcision 
and his dedication. And Simon and, um, and um, oh, the name just went right out of my mind. You'll remember it. And the Anna, that's who it was. The prophetess came and they, they spoke and prophesied over Yeshua. And one of the prophecies was that a sword would pierce your heart, Mary. And she listened to these prophecies and she guarded them in her heart. That phrase is taken directly from this. So just as Jacob guarded his heart to the things that were dripped by Joseph and these events, Mary did the same with Yeshua. Now let's compare these two dreams. One is on the earth of the sheaves, and the other is a heavenly dream, if you want to put it that way. It deals with the sun, moon, and stars. So one is from the earthly realm, and one is in the heavenly realm. And in the first it says, and he told, but here it's, and he recounted. It's a, the, the word of her recounted in Hebrew is a little bit more formal. Uh, it's like the difference between I said something and then I spoke something. Um, and then here he said, hear if you please, but in the second dream he said, behold. Now when behold is used, then it's something that's much more weighty, more profound, something bigger. It's like, stop whatever you're doing and look at this one. In the first dream, hatred is mentioned before and after the dream. They hated him before the dream. They hated him after the dream. But here, hatred is not mentioned before or after. In the first dream, the sheaves bow down to Joseph's sheaf. And you notice it says that Joseph's sheaf arose and remained standing. But in the second dream, the sun, moon, stars bow down to Joseph. So what do you think these two dreams are relating? One earthly and one heavenly. I believe that they are relating information about Yeshua's two advents. His first advent is when he came to earth. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. But the leaders of his day, they were jealous of him. And it says that they hated him without a cause. They hated his words, his speech. They hated his prophecies. They hated everything about him. They were jealous of how um, so much favor was shown to Yeshua and how people followed Yeshua. And, um, and they had the same feelings towards Yeshua that Joseph's brothers had toward him. So the first time he came, he came to earth. He was rejected and despised, and he was put to death. But his sheath arose. That's a picture of Yeshua's resurrection. But we do know that Yeshua is returning. And when he does, the kingdom of heaven will be established on earth. And we see something broader, something more vast, something heavenly occurring this time. Now, remember what his brothers asked him? They said, would you reign over us? Would you then dominate us? And those two words are the words malak, where is where we get the word melek, king. It reflects a willing submission. But the second one is mashal which is submission by force. You know, you can follow the king or not follow the king. You can move to a different kingdom if you don't like your king. But when someone dominates, it's like you have no choice. 
And so they use the word malak the first time and mashal the second time. What's interesting is that also, as we continue, the word for sheaf is the word aluma from the word olam, which means to bind. This is not the same olam that is translated eternal or age. This is spelled with an aleph and not with an ayan, which means to bind or to be dumb or silent. And as you know, in Isaiah 53, 7, when you, Isaiah prophesies of the Messiah that he was led as a sheep to slaughter. He was, he was silent. He didn't speak. He didn't open his mouth. Joseph's sheaf arose, speaks of the resurrection. But over in the second dream, there's no mention of a sheaf being cut down or rising up. When he rose up, it remained standing. There was no second death for Yeshua, no second resurrection for him. In the first dream, only the brothers are involved. But here, it's a larger audience. The brothers and the parents are involved. And in Yeshua's first coming, he came as a shepherd, and he came as a king that we could choose to follow or not. We could choose to make him our king or not make him our king. And Yeshua, as the son of David, we know that David also was, um, he was uh, anointed twice as king. Once is when he was a young boy, and you know the story of how uh, Samuel came to the house of Jesse and he asked him to bring his sons before him. So here come Jesse's sons, and Samuel looks at each one and says, well, none of these are the king. You sure you don't have another son somewhere? And they said, well, there's, there's David out in the field watching the sheep. Samuel said, bring him in, and they waited. And when David was brought in, this little shepherd boy, uh, Samuel says, this is the one, and he anointed him. And this was done secretly in the home of David and his family. And he was made the king. But it was a secret thing. And as Saul began to persecute David, he had a secret following of of loyal followers. And they were persecuted. They were chased by King Saul. Threats were made on their lives. And Saul did everything he could to kill David and his followers. And so here David is, the persecuted king. The king you could follow or not follow. It was up to you. But later, after Saul's death, David is anointed a second time in Hebron, publicly, and all of Israel came to him and then acknowledged him openly and publicly that he was the king. So the first time when Yeshua came, he came as the king. And over his, his, his head at his crucifixion was Yeshua of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. But you could worship him or not, you could accept him or not. But when he returns, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is the master, he is Lord, and will do it to the glory of God. So it's going to be something that is not optional when he returns. So I, I think these are amazing. When you look at these two dreams, Joseph didn't know what they meant, his father didn't know what they meant, and his brothers didn't care what they meant. They just didn't like him. But for us who have the, the uh, scriptures of the Brit Kadashah, we can look back and realize God was given us information we wouldn't understand until later. But after Messiah's coming, 
we now see what these dreams mean. What an incredible God we have. Now let's go on down to verse 12. And it says, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. And Shechem will be the place where Joseph, after his death, is going to be buried. And Israel said to Joseph, Your brothers are pasturing in Shechem, are they not? Come, I will send you to them. So just as God sent his son to his brothers, to Israel, Jacob sent his son, Joseph, to his brothers. May I, I, I like to mention something here. Though Joseph was the 11th born son to Jacob, in Jacob's mind, Joseph was the firstborn. Because you see, Jacob fell in love with Rachel. Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. And when he made the deal with Rachel's uh, uh, brother Laban, I'm sorry, father Laban, um, to marry Rachel, he says, okay, we'll work seven years, and when the seven years are up, you can marry Rachel. And you know the story how on the honeymoon night, Jacob went into the tent, and he, he spent the night with the one he thought he had just married. But in the morning when they woke up, it wasn't Rachel. It was Rachel's sister, Leah. And I can't even begin to imagine how angry, how angry Jacob must have been, how frustrated, how, what a feeling of being cheated. It's probably the same kind of wrath that Esau felt when he was deceived and, uh, and lost his blessing. But anyways, Leah went ahead and had four sons. And then Rachel gives her handmaid to Jacob. And Jacob has two sons through Rachel's handmaid. So Leah thinks, well, if that works for Rachel, it'll work for me. So Leah gives her handmaid to Jacob as a wife. And he has two more sons through her. So now he's up to... Uh, uh, oh, then Leah has two more sons later. She has six sons, and the, each of the handmaids has two, so he's up to ten sons now. And finally, Rachel, Jacob's first love, has a child. Now, in Jacob's mind, he must have been thinking that if Laban had not cheated me and deceived me and replaced Rachel with Leah, I would never have married Rachel or, or Leah, and had those six sons. I wouldn't have married either of the handmaids and had those four. Rachel would eventually have had a son, and Joseph would have been my firstborn son. So I think that in Jacob's mind, Joseph was always his firstborn. And in fact, there's a passage here we skip from 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, that is very informative. It says, Now the sons of Reuben the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn. Get this now. But because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Though Judah prevailed over the brothers, and from him came the leader, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Fascinating. It's a fascinating thing. Though Joseph did nothing to try to wrestle the birthright and blessing away from his brothers, as, 
as Jacob did from his twin brother Esau. Joseph was given both anyway. So we'll be revisiting this more later at near the end of Genesis when we look at Jacob's prophecies over his 12 sons. But keep this in mind, 1 Chronicles 5, the first two verses. Okay, let's continue. Um, and so he sends Joseph to find his brothers. And um, verse 15, a man discovered him because he didn't find his brothers where they were supposed to be. Just as when Yeshua came, the leaders of Israel should have been looking for the Messiah to come because the prophecies had indicated that Yeshua would come during the time he did come, but they didn't recognize him they, because they, spiritually they weren't in the place they were supposed to be. They had drifted so far from the spirit of the Torah and they had wandered so far from God and their hearts had become hardened that when the Messiah came and stood before him, before them, and uh, revealed himself on Hanukkah there in John 10, they still could not recognize him. Even when he raised, when he raised people from the dead, they still rejected him as their Messiah. Their hearts were not right with God, and they hated him without a cause. So just as Joseph went to look for his brothers, and they weren't where they were supposed to be, it says a man, verse 15, discovered him, and behold, he, Joseph, was wandering in the field. And what is the field? Yeshua tells us the field is the world. In his parables, the field represents the world. So here's Yeshua in the world. He came to seek his brothers. They're not where they're supposed to be. And the man asked him, what do you seek? He said, my brothers do I seek. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing? The man said, they have journeyed on from here. I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at double law. Dothan, double law. We could read this as legalism. And sure enough, Yeshua found his brothers, the leaders of Israel, in great legalism. And it was this legalism where they were following the letter of the law and adding to the Torah instead of embracing the spirit of the Torah. And because of that, they accused Yeshua of violating the Torah and then crucified him. Verse 18, they saw him from afar, and when he had not yet approached them, they conspired against him to kill him. Almost word for word what it says in the Gospels. And they said to one another, look, that master dreamer is coming. So now come and let us kill him and throw him into the, one of the pits. And we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Then we shall see what will become of his dreams. What you have to love about this is that their plot to destroy Joseph and to bring his life to an end and therefore kill any chance of his dreams being fulfilled, their actions, their wicked actions, are what were key to Joseph's dreams being fulfilled and bringing everything to pass. So just as the leaders of Israel committed this horrible sin of crucifying their Messiah, thinking that's the end of him, Their actions were actually a key event that needed to happen for Yeshua to become the Redeemer of the world. Again, this is the kind of God we have. You can't do an end run around his will. Even our rebellions and sins, our our wickednesses and, and our evil plots and whatever we try to do 
to subvert his plan, somehow he weaves that into his plan. And we look back and think, you just can't thwart his will. This is something that Job says in the last book of Job, the last chapter of the book of Job, when he realized that no plan of God's can be thwarted. He is going to do what he's going to do. And then Paul says the same thing in Romans, I believe it's in chapter 9, that his intention cannot be resisted. God's intention will always be fulfilled eventually, perfectly in his time. Well, verse 21, Reuben heard, and he rescued him from their hand, which is an interesting phrase because he didn't rescue them from his hand, though he wanted to, though he took some steps to. But it's worded here in a way that on one hand you could say, well, that's absolutely not true. He did not rescue him. But it's almost as if God's saying, Reuben's heart was right before me. He had the right intention. And if things had gone according to plan, Reuben would have saved Joseph. And so it's almost as if in God's mind he says, I'm just going to put it down to Reuben's account that he'd succeeded. You know, if I've often thought, and you can agree or disagree, but if, if Yeshua can say, if a man looks after a woman with lust in his heart, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, if you have a bad and lustful intention towards someone, to a degree, it's like you'd, you'd actually committed that sin. Well, can the reverse of that also be true? That if you have a good intention and you are determined to do a certain thing, but it turns out that you can't, does God count that to you as righteousness? It would seem so. And I think this is a, a passage that supports that idea. So anyways, he said, we will not strike his soul. In other words, we're not going to kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him. Rest, and, and then again, your translation may say intending to rescue him from their hand, but the words intending to are not there, even though many translations uh, include them. To rescue him from their hand, to return him to his father. And so it was when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic. And I have to back up to Reuben again. Why did Reuben, the firstborn, why did he have a soft spot for Joseph? And maybe it wasn't for Joseph so much as he had a soft spot for his dad, for Jacob. They didn't want to break his dad's heart. And Reuben might have despised Joseph as much as the rest of the brothers, but why was Reuben soft-hearted enough to where he wanted to restore Joseph to his father, to Jacob? Because I, here's my, my thinking. I think of the brothers, Reuben was the greatest sinner. Because as we read back in First Chronicles, and we'll, we'll see uh, later, we've read before, we'll see again towards the end of, of the book of Genesis. Reuben committed a great sin. He went and he slept with his father's, well, you can call her a concubine. Other places call her a wife, but with Bilhah, which was uh, Rachel's handmaid. And Jacob found out. It was a great sin. And you have to think if Reuben would respond 
as you or I would if we had committed such a horrible sin. We'd just be broken. We'd be crushed. We'd be humbled by it. And in my thinking, you can agree or disagree. I think Reuben, because his soul had been crushed because he'd done this horrible, horrible thing against his father, that this brokenness brought a humility to where, yeah, I know he loves Joseph more than the rest of us. And he definitely loves Joseph more than me. But I've hurt dad enough. I don't want to see him suffer anymore. And I don't want to be party to bringing any more suffering into my father's life. Just an idea, just a thought. And so it was, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the fine woolen tunic, katonet pasim is what it's called. And that phrase, katonet pasim, is found in this story. It's also found only in one other story in the Bible. It's over in 2 Samuel, and it's in the story of Tamar. And you can look at the story of Tamar, but uh, I'm not going to go there today, but... Uh, you can look up that story of Tamar. She's the only other person in scriptures who is said to wear a katonet pasim. And so that's a signal you need to take the two stories and lay them side by side and compare them. Then they took him and cast him into the pit. The pit was empty. And I think of Yeshua. He was put into a tomb. The tomb had never been used before. It was an empty tomb. No water was in it. They sat to eat food. Now, what's interesting is in John 18, 28, after the crucifixion of Yeshua, we find that the ones responsible for his crucifixion sat down to eat their Passover meal. I wonder if this might have taken place at around the same time. Who knows? They raised their eyes and they saw, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead. Now, Ishmael means a man from God, and these were... If you want to it, translate Ishmaelites literally, it's men of God. A caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead, their camels bearing spices, balsam and lotus, on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah, Judah and Judas are exactly the same name. Judas said to his brothers, what gain will there be if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. But let our hand not be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. His brothers agreed. Many night men, traitors passed by. They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. So here we see Judah instigating the plan to sell Joseph. And we see Joseph sold for silver, 20 pieces of silver. And in the Gospels, of course, we see a Judas who didn't want to raise his hand against Yeshua, but wanted to sell him, sold him for 30 pieces of silver. And they brought him down to Egypt. Verse 29, Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he rent his garments, returning to his brothers. He said, the boy is gone, and I, where can I go? They took Joseph's tunic, slaughtered a goatling, and dipped the tunic in the blood. They dispatched the fine woolen tunic, and they brought it to their father and said, we found this. Hacher na, identify if you please. Is it your son's tunic or not? He recognized it, and he said, My son's tunic, a savage beast, devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to bits. Then Jacob rent his garments and placed sackcloth on his loins. You know, and I think of Yeshua, 
when he's crucified on the cross, it tells us that the veil in the temple was torn in half from top to bottom, was rent in two. From top to bottom means that God is the one who tore it. It's almost as if God was rending his garments. And, um, but that's something that we could talk about the rest of the time, but we don't have the time to. And so it goes on and says uh, that they, the Midianites, they took him to Egypt, sold him to Potiphar. And, uh, and so this brings up a question. I want you to, I did this last time we went through this section. Here is, don't look in your Bibles now, just look at what's on the screen. Here is a quote directly from the scriptures, from our Torah portion. But there's something missing from this quote. See if you can find it. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. And your translation may say the head of the butchers or whatever. It's kind of a, a difficult word to translate. And so there's disagreement as how Potiphar was. And, uh, but anyways, it goes on. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had taken him down there. Adonai was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now, there's something major that is missing from that scriptural quote. I didn't add anything in except to clarify that it's Joseph who we're talking about. But... Uh, can you figure out what's missing? You can pause the tape if you want and, uh, and come back. But here we go. Here's what's missing. Right here. Right here, between the first sentence and the second sentence, chapter 38 is missing. All of chapter 38 from the book of Genesis. An entire chapter. If you go back and look now, you'll see that first sentence is the last verse of chapter 37. And then the next sentence is the first verse of chapter 39. An entire chapter has been skipped in this, this, uh, this quote that I've given you. So if you turn the page, go to chapter 38, that is what goes in between. Now, the reason I'm doing this is because if chapter 38 of Genesis was not in Genesis... You wouldn't go from this first sentence to that next sentence and say, there seems to be something missing. There wouldn't appear to be anything missing. But chapter 38 is inserted here because God wants us to give us a glimpse into Judah's heart, this son of Jacob. And to save us some time, it talks about how Judah, he probably is very depressed after it hit home what he had done, he had sold a brother. He had sold a brother. And there's no way to trace where this brother is, except he's probably in Egypt somewhere. He's probably a slave. How could we ever find him? And then to see the pain on his father's face when when they present him with this, this bloody tunic that belonged to Joseph, they said, identify if you please, hakerna, whose is this? And to see Jacob's life, his heart just absolutely crushed, to see his father go into mourning and remain in mourning for months, for years, must have been absolutely crushing to Judah. Now Judah redeems himself later in the story, but oh my goodness, Compared to what Reuben did, 
Uh, Ruben did was nothing compared to this. I mean, what Ruben did was horrible, but oh my goodness. To sell a brother into slavery and to watch your dad, watch your father, watch the heart just crushed within him. Judah must have been in a deep depression. So chapter 38 is about Judah going down and uh, towards an, a Dulamite man, his name was Hira, in a different part of the land of Canaan. And um, <clears throat> he has two sons, Er and Onan. And so um, he, he takes a, a wife for his oldest son. And his oldest son is wicked, and God kills him. So, according to the laws of leveret marriage, uh, the, the, the wife is then given to the next son. And he was also wicked, and God killed him. Well, Judah is thinking, this, this woman I picked for my son, she's hard on husbands. Uh, she's gone through two of my sons, they're both dead, and now I have a third son, I don't think I want to give her to him because something's going on here. And so this woman, whose name just so happens to be Tamar, the same as the lady I mentioned earlier in 2 Samuel, he just tells her, you go on home and when my third son grows up, gets old enough to marry, then I'll give you to him. But Judah didn't. And, uh, and Tamar is sitting as a widow in her father's house, thinking this Judah is not being a very good father-in-law. He's not following the rules. And um, so Tamar's in a position, she can't really marry someone else because there's another man in line to marry her. But as long as Judah doesn't give this other man to her as a husband, she's not really free to marry somewhere else. She was stuck. And so as you read through the chapter, we find that when um, Judah is heading down to the shearing, they're going to shear all the sheep, Tamar disguises herself as a zona, which is the Hebrew word for a prostitute. And she uh, sets up housekeeping there at the crossroads. And when Judah comes by, he notices her, and he wants to come into her, and you know, and spend some time. And she says, well, what will you give me? And he says, I'll send a goatling to you. I'll send you a, a goatling so that uh, to, to pay for your services. And she says, well, how do I know you will? What will you give me as a security until you give me the goatling? And he says, what do you want? And she puts a really high price. She must have been a looker because Judah it uh, must have been nuts to, to give her what she asked for. She says, I want your staff, I want your cloak, and I want your ring, your signet ring. And Judah gives them to her. And so they spend time together. And when they're done, she goes back home, changes into her regular clothing. And then when Judah, the next day, sends a goatling to the Zona that he had slept with. She's not there. He asks around. Nobody can find her. They said, there was never any Zona here at the crossroads. And so Judah says, realizes, well, I've just been taken in. I was really cheated, and um, there's nothing I can do. I tried to, to pay her, but she's gone, and there's nothing I can do about it. And Lest I become a laughing stock, we're just going to forget the whole matter and go on. Well, lo and behold, 
Tamar becomes pregnant. She's pregnant with Judah's son, and not just one, but twins. This is the other set of twins we find in the Bible. There was Jacob and Esau, and now Judah's sons, Jacob's grandsons. And Tamar is pregnant with, with two of Jacob's grandsons, Judah's sons. And when he finds out she's pregnant, it's like, all right, take her out and kill her. She's committed adultery. But then when they come to get her, she says, well, I'm pregnant by the man who, to whom these belong. She holds up the signet ring, the staff, and the cloak. And when Judas sees those, he realizes his sin, his sin of withholding his third son from Tamar. And he says these profound words. He says, and this is what's interesting. She holds them up and she says, na, identify if you please. The exact same words that were spoken to Jacob when he was presented with, with Joseph's bloody tunic. It's poetic justice, isn't it? And what is his response? In verse 26, Judah recognized and he said, she is more righteous than I. One of the things we find about Judah is that when he is confronted with his errors, he's very quick to repent, very quick to repent and make things right. We'll see this again later on. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. But he's very quick to repent. She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to Shelach, my son, and he was not intimate with her anymore. And it came to pass at the time she gave birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. And it happened that as she gave birth, one put out a hand. This is the strangest birth I've ever read about. One puts out its hand out of the womb. The midwife took a crimson thread and tied it onto his hand, saying, This one emerged first. And it was as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother emerged. This brother is born. And she said, with what strength you asserted yourself. So they called his name Peretz. Peretz, not like the birds, but Peretz means breach or to break through. We find this as a, a verb, Paratz. And uh, Paratz means to breach a wall. You break through a wall. You, uh, it, this is what the name means. And so it's almost like he pulled his brother out of the way and says, no, me first. And, and Peretz comes out. And then after Peretz is born afterwards, his brother, on whose hand was the crimson thread, came out. And he called his name Zerach, which means brightness. Now, what's this all about? Well, it's, um, once again, it's a picture of Messiah and his, his two advents. You see, when Messiah came the first time, it's almost as if God put his hand into the world. He came into the world, but he didn't come to stay because he was rejected. We put a red scarlet thread around him, which is a picture of death, picture of blood. And so instead of emerging fully and establishing his kingdom of the world, Yeshua withdraws. He comes in. He brings brightness, because that's what Zerach means, brightness. And he brings this brightness into the world. We kill him. He withdraws. Then Peretz is born. This breach is born. And then what happens? 
Zerach returns. He says, look, it's me. Almost as if Yeshua said, look at my hands and my feet. Look at my side. It's me. I was here before. I'm back. And when he comes the second time, it's to stay. And it's to emerge fully in all of his glory and to establish his kingdom and his life with us. And uh, there's no going back after that. It's an amazing and incredible picture. Once again, couched in, in these symbols and these images in Genesis 38. That word uh, zerach, by the way, brightness, it's used a couple other places, several other places in Scripture. But um, Psalm 112, verse 4, it says, Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. That word for light is the word zerach, same name as, as this one twin. Zerach dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Psalm 112, verse 4, is referring to the light as a he who is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Also, Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Adonai has zarak, has shined upon you. The glory of Adonai has zarak upon you. Beautiful passages, and you can find other places where this is used. So, Make sure that you pay attention to this. This is a very key thing that connects chapter 38 to chapter 37. In chapter 37, 32, the brothers say to Jacob, Hakerna, identify if you please this bloody cloak. But in 38:25, Tamar says to Judah, the one who instigated the selling of Joseph, Hakerna, identify if you please. I am pregnant by the man to whom these belong. So compare those two stories. It's very important. Here's something interesting you can discuss in your groups and you can think about it. When you think about it, in in chapter 27, Jacob used a goat to deceive Isaac. If you remember, he went before his blind father Isaac, uh, masquerading as Esau. Esau is a very hairy man. And so Jacob put goat fur, goat hair, (laughs) skin on the backs of his hands, the back of his neck. So when Isaac felt his hands, felt his neck, he would think it was Esau. So Jacob, he deceives his father using goat. But then Jacob is deceived. Because is used by Judah to deceive Jacob. Because what did they dip Joseph's cloak in? They dipped it in the blood of a goat. That's in chapter 37, verses 21 and 32. So Jacob deceived his father Isaac. But then Jacob was deceived by Judah and his brothers when he's presented with a cloak that has goat's blood on it. But then Judah is deceived by Tamar, once again involving a goat. Because she says, what will you give me if you lie with me? He says, I'll send you a goatling. Okay. She deceives him. She has no intention of getting a goatling from Judah. She gets his cloak and his ring and his staff instead. So what's this deal with goats used in deception? 
I think the key is in Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 is the description of Yom Kippur. And if you recall, there are two goats involved at Yom Kippur, two identical goats. Lots are, are drawn, and the lot that comes up for the one goat is to Azazel. The lot that comes up the other goat is for Adonai. And, and the goat for Azazel, all the sins of the people, their willful sins, their rebellious sins, their accidental sins, are all confessed on this goat. It is taken out into the wilderness and pushed off a cliff, and it bears away all the sins of Israel. Then the blood of the other goat is taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled before the Ark of the Covenant. And these two goats are always viewed as being two halves of one whole. One comes to present itself before God. Its blood is taken before God in the Holy of Holies. This is the only day of the year the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. But the other goat bears the sins out into the wilderness. And again, and these two goats, do you see the picture of Yeshua? He bears our sins away as far as the east is from the west, but he also makes a way for us to come before his Father, and we have a way there that comes in by his blood. An amazing thing. So, something to think about, this theme of the goat as it runs through these stories. Well, our time is almost gone, but we're not going to let that stop us. (laughs) I'm going to just get you started on the next section, and uh, then you can study it on your own. But I I love this quote from the Midrash Rabbah, Genesis Rabbah, uh, 85.1. It says, the fathers of the tribes were busy selling Joseph. Jacob was distracted with his sackcloth and fasting. Judah was busy taking a wife. Meanwhile, the Holy One, blessed be he, was creating the light of Messiah. Even in the Genesis of Rabbah, which is ancient, uh, these comments that are found in, in the uh, Midrash Rabbah were well known in the first century. And, uh, and whoever wrote this comment saw in the life of Joseph a foreshadowing of the Messiah. And as you probably know, in Judaism, they look at the prophecies concerning Messiah and they have come to believe that there are two Messiahs to be expected. Because they read prophecies about a Messiah who's going to come and be rejected. And then they see prophecies of Messiah who comes in as a, um, a military figure, who comes in conquering and driving out Israel's foes and establishing the kingdom. And they think, how can we reconcile these prophecies of the Messiah with these prophecies of the Messiah? And so they figure there must be two Messiahs. And they call the one Messiah Mashiach ben Yosef because he's like the son of Joseph. He's, he's like a Messiah who's like Joseph because he's rejected by his brothers. He, he goes among the Gentiles. He's hated without a cause. And he, he goes into, he go, becomes a slave, he, he goes into to prison, he's just rejected. He lives a very humble and a very persecuted life. But somehow, only in a way God can, can do, he, he rises to this place of being a savior, not only of Israel, but of the world. And they call this 
This other Messiah, Mashiach ben David, the Messiah son of David, David the conquering king. And um, he comes to rule, to reign as king over Israel that everyone will acknowledge as king. Well, we know that there are not two Messiahs. There's only one Messiah, but he comes at two times. And when he came the first time, he came humble. He came meekly. And he was rejected by his brothers and by so many, by much of the world. And when he came the first time, he was born to Mary, whose husband's name was Joseph. So Yeshua would have been known as Yeshua ben Yosef, Yeshua son of Joseph. And, um, but when Yeshua returns, he will come back as the son of David, the ben David. And he'll come to conquer and to rule. And uh, this time he came the Malak. And this time he'll come to Mashal, to dominate and rule the rod of iron. And it's the same Messiah, the same heart. But what he came to do for us to accept him or not voluntarily, this time he will come to establish. And those of us who have voluntarily made him our king, and have chosen to follow him and be faithful to him best we can, we become part of the bride. And that is what the scriptures are all about. Who's going to be part of the bride? Be faithful now, awaiting for the coming of our Savior, our Redeemer, our Bridegroom. And who are the ones who reject? So I hope you're part of the bride. I hope you serve him now. Well, the last part, and we will not take time to go through it here, but I hope you take time to really study this and look at the dreams of the two uh, fellow prisoners that uh, Joseph encounters in the prison. Uh, we don't have time to get into chapter 40 and how Mrs. Potiphar tries to seduce Joseph. And you might discuss what are ways in which the world try to seduce Yeshua who tried to bend, in, to bend his will to ours. That's a, it's a very uh, important discussion to have. But as you know, the, uh, Joseph is framed by Mrs. Potiphar's accusations, and so her husband regretfully has him put into the prison. So here's Joseph, the youngest or next youngest of Jacob's sons, who's then sold as a slave to Egypt and becomes a slave in Potiphar's house. There he is framed and lied about and now becomes a prisoner in an Egyptian prison. I don't think he can get any lower than that. But then next week's portion, we'll see how he's launched then to becoming the ruler of Egypt. The picture we see here is this, and it's something that applies to our lives as well. If you've ever done archery and you want to shoot an arrow uh, with your bow that direction, if you wanted to make it go its furthest that away, you have to pull it and the bowstring as far as you can this way. And the further you pull the string that direction, the further the arrow is going to go that direction. And so it's almost like God is drawing his bow. Joseph is rejected by his brothers. And then... He's sold into Egyptian slavery, and then he's put into a prison, and then from there, boom, he becomes the leader of Egypt. What an incredible story. 
But while in prison, he meets Pharaoh's baker and his cupbearer. <clears throat> Bakers make bread, cupbearers bear wine. Bread, wine. Here's another key, another insight into Yeshua. And so everything about the, the dreams that the cupbearer and the baker have and their um, interpretation and fulfillment are pictures of the blood and body of Messiah. And so I have some graphs here, some graphics that you can go through, work through by yourself or with your home group. And uh, I think there's some insights there that you'll find very beneficial. This passage is so packed full with information and insights about Yeshua that it's frustrating. You probably sense the frustration of my voice that we just don't have time to go through them all. If you want to delve deeper into this Torah portion, uh, go to our website, www.bethtakun.com. Go to the Audio Files tab, and when it drops down, you'll see a tab that says Torah Project. In the Torah Project, we took well over a year to go through just the book of Genesis. And in that, I did six teachings on this Torah portion alone. So what I'm cramming together here into one hour, I spent more than six hours on in the Torah project. So if you want to go there, I developed these things much more. And um, so you can go there to find more information. Okay, discussion questions. I just have three. How do Mrs. Potiphar's temptations of Joseph reflect Satan's three temptations of Yeshua? Satan's three temptations, as they're recorded in Matthew 4, have a progression to them. And as you look at how uh, Mrs. Potiphar, I don't know what else to call her, I don't know what her name was, uh, when you look at how she tempted Joseph, you'll find them following a similar pattern. See what you can learn from that. Number two, how do the baker and the cupbearer represent the body and blood of Yeshua? Number three, how many parallels did you find in our portion between Joseph and Yeshua? And I gave you some as we were walking through. But without cheating, uh, refrain from looking at the bottom of the notes section because there I've listed most all of the, the parallels that I have found in these four chapters. So don't look at them yet. Try to figure them out as much as you can. Then you can check your list against the list I've made here in the notes. I hope you enjoy, um, enjoy the study, but... I hope you see the study as simply a preparation to do your own study as you look into this Torah portion more deeply. Because as you look at this deeply with the right perspective and the right mindset, you are encountering Yeshua through the, the life of Joseph. And it's a, a, an amazing and powerful encounter. So look at Joseph. Let's see Yeshua. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and King, thank you. Thank you so much for the wonder of your word. As David prayed, Adonai, unveil my eyes that I may behold wonders from your Torah. Father, we've seen wonders in your Torah over this past hour. And there are more there you wish to reveal to us. So, Father, I pray you would open our hearts and our minds and just give us a hunger and thirst to know you better to know your son better and to seek his face. And Lord, I pray you would open the secrets that are found in this Torah portion.
that are buried in the story of Joseph, the story of Judah. And Lord, may we see our Messiah's face there. And we ask this in the name of our Messiah, Yeshua. Amen.